Hello, I'm here with Adrian Hannes, professor of anthropology at Augustana University, and we'll be talking about his experience in the Vietnam War. Were you drafted or enlisted? Uh, as, as it turns out, that of course, we had the draft in effect in the country at the time that Vietnam was going on. And so when I went to college, it was sort of an assumed, guaranteed that if you were male and 18 years of age or older, you'd probably be in the service. So the um, ROTC people on the campus were recruiting students, you know, into ROTC because, of course, the argument was... Wouldn't you rather go into the service as an officer and a gentleman than go into the service as an enlisted person? And there are a lot of background to that. But anyhow, the uh, so I went through the ROTC program at Wichita State University. I was in Army ROTC. And I got my commission in the military intelligence branch. And then um, I went, got a delay to going on active duty to attend law school. So I was in law school in the uh, 65-66 school year at the University of Kansas. But at the end of that first year of law school, a number of us who had the same commission in Army Military Intelligence got um, letters saying, you know, greetings, but we're offering you a friendly, uh, all expenses paid vacation to um, Southeast Asia. So um, I then ended up getting a set of orders to go to Vietnam. So with the idea that whenever we would finish our tour of duty and come back to this country, I think we had up to six years to go back to pick up our studies where we left off. And they, so the university would have been required to let me just pick up, you know, the times with a year credit for the work. But any case, um, so I then went to Vietnam and went over on a set of orders that were to study captured enemy weapons. So I, I went over believing that I was going to be um, in Saigon uh, studying captured enemy weapons. But when I got there, there was a program that was just being initiated called the Phoenix Program, and I got, I and about a hundred others like myself who were military intelligence officers in going over as junior grade, you know, officers, lieutenants, were um, taken into this Phoenix Program. Uh, could you explain the Phoenix Program? Yeah, the, the Phoenix Program actually, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite complicated in many of its facets, but basically um, the idea of the program was to, originally, it was a CIA program, and originally the idea was that they were going to staff it with CIA operatives, and then um, Vietnam was divided in the south into four core areas, I-Corps, II-Corps, III-Corps, and IV-Corps. And each core area then had provinces, would be something like states. And then within the provinces, there were districts. And so they were going to eventually, with this program, have operatives in each of the districts who were 
going to establish um, what were called DIOCCs or District Intelligence Operation Coordinating Centers. And <clears throat> when you went to one of those districts, the idea was going to be that the CIA coordinator had a group of individuals who were Vietnamese who had been taken out of the prisons in Vietnam by the CIA and taken to a number of different areas, both in-country and out-of-country. Some of the people went to Guam for training, some of the Vietnamese, and some of them went to um, Vung Tau in-country, in, in trained as assassins by the CIA, and then they were going to be attached in 20-person teams to the CIA operative. They were going to try to start collecting the CIA people who were going to be in charge of collecting intelligence to allow them to build dossiers on individuals who were suspected to be Viet Cong or, or you know, cadre that were enemy cadre with the intent then to assassinate these people. But what happened at the very last minute when this program was being formulated, the CIA cut a deal with the Army to staff the program with junior grade intelligence officers. So that's where I come into this. When I arrived in Vietnam, I got there. My tour was from the 17th of July, 1967, to the 17th of July, 1968. And actually, the, this program, the Phoenix program, was officially launched on the 9th of July, 1967. So I was one of the very first groups of people that were taken into the program. So I was sent out to a district, the province that I was in was um, Vinh Zun province, and the district that I was in was the Chautan district, which was, we were located about 40 or so kilometers north of Saigon. And so in that case, it just turned out that this was not normally the case, but you had a province and then you had the different districts within the province, but my district was in the same community as the province capital. So I was I was in the community of Binzun that the Chautan district was in, you know, in that same community. So then we um, had, unfortunately, from the outset, the program was very, very, very complicated because none of us that had been sent out either had any language training in Vietnamese, nor did we really have any training in exactly how you would go about setting up such an office to begin with, or how you would exactly start creating dossiers on people. And of course, I was given 20 uh, Vietnamese trained as assassins, and then we were living with the Vietnamese in this district compound. So the district compounds were already in existence. They were sort of home guard units, and um, so in my case, the district compound had about 50 Vietnamese home guard, like our home guard, you know, uh, folks living there with their families. And then they would go out on operations that were uh, infantry operations to try to, uh, I mean, they would work on, again, on intelligence, trying to determine where some of the Viet Cong uh, were 
moving around and then try to go and interdict them. But then amidst all this, I was there. Um, we were attached to these districts. There was a, a military advisory team was the first thing that we had in Vietnam called MACV teams that were infantry advisors. So in these districts, there was supposed to be a major, a lieutenant, and about four enlisted people, U.S., who were advising the district chief on the military operations. And then we were attached to them for support. But <clears throat> it turned out that um, there wasn't a district in Vietnam at the time that I got there that the MACV team had its full component of people. They were all lacking the junior grade officer. So somebody like myself shows up and the major says, oh, well, you're my infantry second lieutenant. And we're saying, uh, no, we're, um, we're actually attached to the CIA and we're carrying out this other program. And of course that didn't persuade most of the majors at all. They were making us go out on infantry projects. But in any case, so this year uh, turned out to be a particularly, um, well, let's say, conflicted year in many ways. But it, in the early part of 1968, uh, very end of January, the first couple of days of February, was when the Tet Offensive occurred. And of course, that was a countrywide, in the South, a countrywide set of attacks that the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese set up against all of the American installations and the Vietnamese installations. And it was, uh, there were a number of days of intense, intense, intense fighting. And there were certain areas of the country that really fell out of the government control of the South, uh, you know, where, where uh, various outposts and so on were overrun. And actually, from that point on, it was very difficult and we really never figured out whether there was yet going to be another type of attack of that sort or whether there had been such an incredible slaughter of the enemy that they were incapable of attacking again. And there were some minor uh, secondary attacks that occurred later in May. But anyway, where I was, um, we, for instance, went on from that point on, from the, the Tet Offensive till I left in July, we really implemented a program of not sleeping at night. We stayed up uh, all night and tried to sleep off and on during the day because we really continually were uncertain whether there was going to be another you know, round of these kind of attacks occurring or not. But um, So I went out on about... I think I went out on about 229 different, uh, you know, day exercises, and about 197 of them knitted uh, firefights that we got into. So it was a, it really was a difficult year, and I think the Phoenix program itself, for all of its hoped-for advantages that it was going to gain us, really didn't succeed. It was a program that foundered like the rest of our programs and of course Vietnam now in hindsight is seen as a as a you know really a, is not exactly one of the high water marks of good things that the United States has ever gotten involved in I think that it's been seen as a pretty much a total debacle that um, was carried on 
through a number of presidencies because the, uh, you know, we went from Kennedy to Johnson to Nixon and so on, and it was a situation where the way in which the assessment of the war was being done was being done on statistics. It was a numbers game. And um, McNamara and a number of the other advisors to the presidents um, continued to assure the, the leaders of our country that we were making great gains. And really what you were having perpetuated was a monumental set of untruths. We just, it wasn't, it wasn't what was happening. On the ground, we were not gaining anything. And of course, part of the problem that I kept thinking from the outset, really, because I was not, I went into the service because I really believed that I had to serve my country. It turned out I actually could, could have avoided any service because my father died when I was eight and I'm a sole surviving son. And so I could have, I would not have been drafted, but I didn't know that. And the ROTC people didn't bother telling me that. And so whenever I um, joined ROTC and then signed my commission papers, then they said, well, you, you would have been exempted as a sole surviving son, except that you volunteered. <laughs> well, so anyway, that was another chink in the chinks in the wall of building my cynicism about this whole thing. But in any case, um, we, we just kept having situations like, for instance, one of the things I did as an officer there in the Phoenix program, it was decided that we needed to get a more accurate handle on body counts of how many people we were killing. And so every time there was an attack on one of our outposts or there was an engagement, we, I, was in my district, was taken out to count the pieces and parts of bodies that were left that were enemy, you know, enemy bodies. Well, so fine, so, and then this was in the early stages of the computer era, so we were filling out, you know, cards and then sending them into Saigon to be processed. And so a few months after we started this body count situation, I started getting the reports back copies of the reports that included our district and in reading back through them I kept thinking these figures don't seem like the figures that I sent in and I of course had kept the records in my files there so I go back to my files and I keep thinking well this is just strange every single month that I send in a report and say there were six people killed that I that I identified six bodies um body count that was in this report was like two or three times that high. So at the very end of my tour of duty, whenever I was going to come back to the United States, I spent a day in Saigon and I went to CDEC, which is where these reports were being generated. And a friend of mine was one of the people generating them actually. And so I visited with him and I said, you know, at least for my district, these figures are really erroneous because they're uh, distorted by several fold. And he said, well, they're not erroneous. The thought process is here that both we and the enemy try to recover our dead. So if there were three enemy dead remaining, then it's 
the thought process is when we sent the report to the next higher headquarters, they thought, well, if there were three there left, they probably carried away at least three. So they put down six. And then it gets to the next higher headquarters, and they say, oh, well, if there were six, they probably carried away six. So they put down 12. So by the time the reports got to McNamara and Johnson, you know, in Washington, for the decision-making to go on, we had probably totally annihilated all of the South and most of the North of everybody. So, I mean, it was, it's just, it, it, it goes to show again that you can play number games all you want, except the truth of what's happening on the ground doesn't necessarily equate at all to what your numbers are showing you. The other thing that was a problem, of course, for the United States was that, and we should take a lesson from a much deeper time in, in our history, because the way we beat the British back when we were fighting <laughs> the days of the Revolution, we were fighting it as guerrillas. Well, that was what the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese were fighting as guerrillas. And of course, it was their land and their homeland. And so the fervor with which they were putting up the resistance was very different than what any of us would have had. I mean, we were not, this was not our homeland. You know, we were there advising them. And so, and one of the great criticisms while I was in Vietnam and after Vietnam <clears throat> for many years was, well, the Vietnamese that we were fighting with or supporting the South Vietnamese come the end of the day, they'd all go home. Well, I was, I spent hundreds of hours sitting with the Vietnamese that I was living with, and the, and I had to talk to them through interpreters largely, but there were a couple people that were in this home guard that were actually fluent in English, and one of them had been a college professor in Saigon before he was called up and taken back to be in this home guard, and he said, well, you know, you have to think about this from our perspective that this is a conflict that's been going on for many, many years because the French were there for 80 years and then we're there and this continues to continue. And he said, so um, you're here for a year and you go home, but we're here for our life. And so we have to live a life around the war. So, you know, that was a striking, I mean, just the way it was phrased to me. I mean, it was like, right, so you go home at night, or, well, he couldn't go, well, he was there in the compound with me, but, but the point is that, you know, the, one of the big criticisms of the war from people in this country, especially when the critics began to really crank up, and it was around the time of the Tet Offensive, of course, that the protests against the war finally really became heavily engaged because, um, you know, it, it then became more and more convincing than ever that we should not be there and that we were not winning and that the, the propaganda that was being put out by our government and by our military and so on was distorting the picture. But um, <coughs> anyway, so then whenever the war, whenever I came back, I served another year military intelligence in a, in a uh, regional headquarters in Kansas City. But whenever I got out of the service, instead of going back to law school, because I had become somewhat disenchanted whenever I was in law school with 
the structure of the law itself were disappointed, I guess, in many ways. But then Vietnam really took care of it for me if I ever had any doubts about how I did not find this to be something that I wanted to pursue any further. So I went back and started all over. My undergraduate degree is in political science. Well, I had a dual degree, political science and psychology. Then I went to law school. Came back and I thought, I'll try this whole thing all over again. So I entered the graduate program at Wichita in anthropology and got a master's degree in cultural anthropology and then came up here to South Dakota and started teaching. And after teaching for a number of years, I took a two-year leave of absence and went back to the University of Utah and got my PhD with a focus in archaeology so that's uh, so my training is sort of uh, cultural and archaeology since anthropology is a four subfield area biological anthropology or physical linguistics archaeology and cultural anthropology then my my strengths would be in cultural and, and archaeology but um, but in any case I'm afraid that um, the more things that are written about Vietnam only point up to a greater and greater degree that it was just one of those conflicts that we should not have engaged ourselves in. And it, uh, you know, it netted us 53 or 54,000 dead. And there were, whenever I was in Vietnam, there were half a million people on the ground in Vietnam, plus all the people supporting the effort in this country and scattered around the world in other military complexes. And so there were millions that actually went through that engagement because we were engaged from, you know, our first engagements dated back actually, really actually to Eisenhower and then Kennedy, and, you know, accelerated it and then Johnson carried it on and then Nixon carried it on. So you've got many years of, you know, of total engagement of this country and Not, not that these were evilly intended people, but it was, it was just a very, uh, very bad set of decisions that continued to be made. And then to cover up the bad decisions, they continued the exercise because the, the argument kept being, well, we can't pull out because then we'd be defeated. Well, of course, in the end, we did not have exactly an honorable way in which we left Vietnam. It was sort of a chaos in the end of just practically the whole thing was collapsing and we just pulled out, you know, and then within a very short time, um, the, the government was reformed over there. And, um, and so, you know, and of course, the, if you like twisted ironies, and 50 years later, Vietnam has become one of our staunchest trading partners in business and commerce so so again you know it's we probably could have beaten them down into the ground with consumer capitalism instead of a war but uh, <laughs> so anyway but the the power bases of all these things in other words the military industrial complex of our country and those people profiting from this and the power and so on I mean it, it was just one of those sort of a strange set of, of decisions being made. And, and the other thing that, of course, uh, 
is true about human aggression or the story of humankind looking at it through the lens of archaeology, these conflicts, and certainly in the modern era, you've got these periods of time that are about, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, and then the next conflicts pick up. And so you have a you have a period of just about enough time for the memories to get dulled enough that the next conflict comes up and we once again engage ourselves in it and it's uh, and so uh, from the cultural anthropological standpoint human aggression is a culturally learned phenomena and we wouldn't have to be undertaking it except that we are competing against all the other peoples of the world for the resources and that competition sets up a, a tense type of circumstance at best in many cases and so it's um, it's it's uh, very difficult to see how this spiral of continuing upheavals and so on is really going to end but societies, uh, the economics and the politics and so on are such that uh, it becomes more and more difficult to see how in a world where population numbers are just spiraling out of control, I mean whenever, I think I remember saying that it was in 1806 that we reached the first billion of us on the planet. When I was born, it was in the 40s, it was about 4 billion up to almost eight. Well, and so you have these huge numbers of us on the planet, and we're really becoming the planet eaters because the natural resources, of course, are being depleted while the population is, you know, expanding wildly. So it's a, it's an equation that doesn't really look like one that is um, bodes extraordinarily well in the long, long haul unless we somehow bring our population numbers to a point of stabilizing it. And of course, now that we're beginning to see such significant evidence, I think irrefutable evidence personally of the climate change and the planet undergoing the upheavals it's go up, you know, going through climatically, then it's um, all of those things kind of factor together to paint I know that people think that I'm somewhat of a pessimist. I don't think, I don't actually particularly feel that way. I just feel like there's a set of facts that trying to look at them as objectively as you can don't really uh, tend to make you feel wildly optimistic. I mean, our technologies and so on have saved us to this point in time, but that's something which is a cultural phenomenon as well. And so um, the question is just, I think that in the future, not that everything is going to just dissolve, but people are going to find themselves probably in ways that will reduce what is currently called, you know, our, our form of 
lifestyle, I think that we'll all be cutting back. We'll have to because it's, it, you know, the, the, the planet probably just will not be able to sustain as we add more people to it. Uh, if the sea levels are rising and, and the continents are beginning to become inundated and populations, of course, living along any of the waterfronts of the world will lose land and so you'll have a land depletion going on and and natural resources being depleted and then numbers of people intensifying and so it's a it's a it's an incredible conundrum for just reflecting on what we're doing but anyway but thank you very much thank you yeah sure